Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon. Um, <clears throat> so when you sit, uh, your posture is really important. It counts for everything. When I was saying uh, that uh, yesterday that um, your attitude's really important, it, it starts in your posture. So um, <clears throat> I imagine that uh, when I set up my cushion, it's it's uh, the center of the universe, and then when I sit down, I sit right at the center of the universe. And then uh, <clears throat> my posture is included in that, so it's not separate from anything really. And um, we've talked a little bit about how important it is uh, to relax your breathing. I hope everyone's feeling that a little bit. <laughs> and um, I wanted to say just a little something about uh, eyes in uh, practice. Um, uh, when you sit with your eyes closed, then um, if you follow your breath in your nose, sometimes it creates a tension in your eyes. Because you don't realize, but you're actually looking at your nose. This happens a lot. So uh, <clears throat> uh, it's hard to keep your eyes steady when you close your eyes. Also, uh, if you ever watch people when they're sleeping and they're dreaming, their eyes are moving all over the place watching whatever they're dreaming. So, um, same thing when you're sitting. <clears throat> uh, when you're sitting and the, the fighter jet goes by or whatever that thing is. Is it a fighter jet or something? Um, your eyes will move with the sound. So, uh, your eyes are directly connected to your brain and suboccipitals and so it's really hard to keep that stillness when your eyes are moving around. The other thing that happens when you close your eyes is uh, the bell rings and then you close your eyes and it feels like you're going in inward. Do you know that experience? Oh, I'm going in. And then the bell rings 
and then you open your eyes and it feels like you've you've come back again so part of the seventh and eighth, sta- eighth stage of the ox herding uh, stages is about uh, dropping this idea of inside and outside and I find one really helpful way of doing this is uh, uh, to practice sitting with my eyes half open some people like half open some people like half closed you know who you are. <laughs> so, um, uh, in, in yoga practice, uh, some of us are used to this, it's called drishti. And um, uh, when, when the book Light on Yoga was published uh, by uh, Yengar, um, <clears throat> the translator translated gazing as a gazing at a point and they, they mentioned nine different points. The navel and the thumb and the, there's a you know, tip of the nose. Um, and uh, this has created a lot of migraine headaches, actually. People in forward bending staring at their nose. <laughs> and I always imagine that the translator was paid by Tylenol <laughs> to translate it as gazing at tip of nose, just to sell more migraine medication. Um, the word that gets translated as point is a desha, which actually means field. field. And this is a very important distinction. Uh, when you sit, if you look at a point, um, let's try it. Take your thumb and uh, hold your thumbnail away from you and really stare at your thumbnail. You see how your breathing stops? You already notice that? And, and your lower jaw like gets sucked up. It's really intense, you know. Yeah, so that's not, uh, that's not how we want to uh, use our eyes. Um, because that's how we're always using our eyes. Right? Um, when we talk about uh, drishti and desha, so gazing uh, at a field, uh, we're doing something very different w- with our eyes. So, so let's try it. If you put your thumb out, uh, unless you're Buddhist, it's not your thumb. Talk about that tomorrow. Um, Then instead of looking at the thumb, let the whole field, so everything that's in your visual field, instead of looking at it, let it come towards the eyes. So so the, the thumbnail is just a placeholder for the eyes to get still, but actually your peripheral vision is going to increase. So notice this, the, the, the more still your eyes get, the wider your peripheral vision gets. And now take your thumb away and just look at anything and let it come towards your eyes. So instead of your eyes going after the thing, just let the whole field come towards your eyes. And you'll notice you can breathe when you do this. And now go back to staring. So pick something and really stare at it. And you feel how your breath stops right away? Can everybody see that a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, so when you sit um, with, your, uh, with your eyes half open, one of the things with sitting with your eyes half open is uh, you're not looking at anything. 
in, uh, in the Yoga Sutra, this is called a Pratyahara, which is when um, the gaze is so wide that the eyes uh, stop being hungry for images. So the gaze is just totally receptive. Do, do you get a feeling for what I mean by this? Yeah. So this is a nice thing to try in sitting practice. Is um, it, it, A lot of it depends on your posture. Some people, they look down about five feet uh, to the floor. Um, but most people, they have to look up a little bit. So, so, so sort of like looking down 20 feet away. And this keeps your sternum bone up. And um, then uh, when you meditate, bell rings, you don't go anywhere. You're right here in the room, right here in the space. And then when the bell rings again at the end of the set, uh, you're here. You didn't go anywhere. So um, try this. Try this sometime. And, uh, and then the practice... Um, uh, is right here. It's the punchline. And uh, then your senses uh, let go of their attachment to sense objects. And one of the thing, one of the ways you know you're starting to concentrate uh, when you sit is that um, you'll notice suddenly that even though your eyes are open, it's a little bit blotchy. And, and the the eyes are just not interested anymore. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just not interested anymore. And then, uh, usually that happens at the same times that your ears uh, stop being interested in sounds. And then the practice is really working. So, it's warm today. It's good for practice. I often think that practice is like a fever. You know how a fever sort of like absorbs whatever karma is going on? You know? And you just kind of let a fever just burn everything up. So this is, this is what I like about the heat. So anyways, there's a technique you can work with. And um, <clears throat> I also find uh, if the inhale is really smooth at the top, so when I'm inhaling, if the top of the inhale is really smooth, it automatically sets up the, the gaze. So you can also try this out when you're sitting. That, um, when you sit, if the inhale is really, really smooth, uh, there's a bone that releases right here called the ethmoid bone. It used to be called the third eye, now we just call it the ethmoid bone. Which is, actually, it's a bit more interesting. Um, if you don't know what the ethmoid bone is, you should Google it on Tuesday. <laughs> um, but uh, when you have a smooth inhale, your ethmoid bone just floats, and it makes your eyes really, really soft. So um, you can experiment with this a little bit. So I want to remind you that um, no matter what you think about this retreat, uh, that's not what's happening. So your mind uh, likes to frame things. This is the job of your mind. It just it wants to take a moment and put it into a context and frame it. Oh, that's what that is. Oh, this is who I am. Oh, they're so and so. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? It's just so that you can go, oh, I know what this is. And um, the problem with this is throughout the retreat, you'll be like, this is a really, really good retreat. This is an amazing retreat. And then an hour later, you'll be like, I'm never going to do this again. Like, why, why did I sign up? And then you'll have a moment, you know, looking at the river, and you'll be like, this is the most beautiful, this is my life, and I'm going to become a nun. (laughs) Have you you had this happening yet? (laughs) She's going home? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, slowly though, a shift is happening. And for some people, the shifts on retreat are dramatic, and they happen very quickly. And for other people, the shifting on the retreat is very, very slow. Really slow. And uh, you might not even really notice it right away. A little bit like this bridge that's being built. On the first day, there was just a piece of bamboo. On the second day, there was a shovel. On the third day, there was like a little bit of dirt moved. Yeah, have you noticed this? Yeah. Fourth day, there was a hole Today there's one piece of steel. It's really gradual. Reminds me of like government action on climate change. (laughs) Anyways. um, It's what happens when you get meditators to build things. So the the practice is very gradual, and um, you'll notice the changes in your life are also gradual. I notice for me, uh, I don't have a temper I used to have, and uh, anxiety doesn't really come around anymore. And I'm more interested in other people than I ever was really uh, interested in them. And I'm more interested in being a member of the world. And I see also that uh, wisdom doesn't need to just come from introspection uh, and solitude. Some of of us, I think we have this fantasy that we can only reach anything deep when we're alone. But uh, that's not the case. Because we're never alone. The world may be empty, but It's not empty of relationships. So, I encourage you to to kind of notice the gradualness. And as you do, also, that you'll start to see uh, your triggers. And this is where we ended yesterday, which I just want to summarize, which is um, the stages yesterday were very much about how you're practicing in a way where you start to see uh, your triggers and your reactions And sometimes you can get some space from them, but sometimes you notice them, but you keep going anyways. And also that uh, the road home is uh, windy. 
Do you remember that line yesterday? The road home's windy. Whenever I, I see the word windy, I always think it says windy. So maybe I'm reading it wrong. Maybe the road home is actually windy. Um, so I want to tell you a story about a windy road. And um, <clears throat> these stories that I tell, these are like just little snippets about the universe. And it's really important to hear these stories, I think, you know, because um, when I first uh, started practicing, I learned uh, in the Goenka tradition, I don't know how many of you have done that, and I would sit and all kinds of things would happen, and then I would go to the teacher and say, like, this is going in, and they would say, just go back to the body scan. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And it would always be interesting, but eventually I felt like I would learn more just by listening to a Neil Young record. <laughs> and then I realized, I need to study with a teacher. Because um, uh, there's so many angles from our experience, in our experience, that we need to keep looking at. So uh, some of you have heard many of these teachings a million times, but depending on where you are in your practice, it'll reach you in a different way. Sometimes I feel like when I talk in front of the room, I'm like, Reinventing the wheel. <laughs> it's like deja vu. So, um, when students are calm, usually we give them these little stories that they can work on. I think I've given a bunch through the retreat so far. You know. um, there's a group of uh, stories that come from a collection called the Miscellaneous Koans. And um, there's some famous koan collections. But uh, there was a, a guy named Hakwin who collected a koans that aren't in the other collections. And uh, a lot of teachers, contemporary teachers, are still contributing to this collection. And uh, usually they're like one-liner stories where there's not that much dialogue. Um, and they're actually my favorite ones. So uh, one koan from the collection is um, Stop the War. So this is good to give to like a student who uh, has good shamatha, good calmness, but uh, they really fuck up all their relationships. Do you know anybody like this? <laughs> and so you would give them this practice to take care of them. Stop the war. Um, another one that I like, and if you listen to the podcast, I've, I've taught this one many times, is uh, Save a Ghost. Mm. <laughs> How do you save a ghost? My favorite one that I, I'm still working with, really my favorite one, is um, uh, make yourself the deity of compassion, Kuan Yin. So take her posture. And uh, give shelter to a homeless person. Can you imagine taking this on? Give shelter to a homeless person. Sometimes it's give shelter to the homeless person. So these are all good koans. I don't know why I'm telling you all of them. I shouldn't give them all away. Uh, but I'm trying to get to the ones I want to tell you about. But they're so good, you know. Um, and I realize you only have a few days left. I feel like I should just give you everything that I know. Um, so uh, the, the story I want to tell is... Um, uh, how do you go straight on a road with 99 curves? One version of the story is, how do you go straight on a narrow mountain road with 99 bends? Can you picture that? 
around here. I mean, right away, you probably picture some crazy country where you've been on a bus, on a windy road. Has anyone had this experience with animals? How do you go straight on a road with 99 curves? Some things, you know, you just can't think through them. And uh, um, sometimes you get into a rut in your practice where you just start seeing the same thing over and over and over again. You start ruminating. You see something you can't let go of. Has anyone seen this yet? And um, I know when that happens to me, I can really get in despair. And like kind of hard on myself. Like, why can't you just get back to the breath? And you feel like you're failing at the practice, you know. I just can't get back to the breath. Uh, One time, I was saying this to myself. Like, why can't I just get back to the breath, you know. And then I don't know what happened, but I realized I could just laugh. (laughs) Like, actually, if I just laughed right now, I would go back to the present moment. So that's what I did. I laughed. It's like Mahakashyapa's story yesterday. When he cracked a smile, or he cracked up. Uh, So when you laugh, you go straight. Straight through the bends. Because you're not caught by all the bends. This is why um, uh, releasing the tongue is so important. The best way to release your tongue uh, in the practice. Because your tongue is just an embassy of your mind. So when the mind is clinging, it shows up automatically as tension in your tongue. And you can feel it right now. Whenever the mind's grasping, the tongue starts holding on. And the fascia of your tongue, it goes all the way through your trachea. If you don't know where that is, you you Google that on Tuesday. (laughs) And it actually holds up. Uh, It goes around your pericardium, and it holds up uh, the top of your lungs. And I remember once going to a cadaver lab, and we dissected a cadaver, and we took the tongue out with the heart in one piece. It's like, whoa. If you saw that, you would never forget it ever again. That's why when people say, like, speak from your heart, (laughs) they're not making that up. That's a real thing. (laughs) So so one of the ways uh, to release your tongue is you just smile. And if you look at all the Buddhas around this beautiful property, there's so many gorgeous Buddhas, you know. They're sitting next to you also. They all have this really, uh, li- this little smirk. I always think like a cat. They, have this, they smile like a cat. The story is they all have a smile because there was coffee on the retreat. <laughs> <laughs> so I always imagine like, Kuan Yin just had a really good espresso. (laughs) 
And if you're not into coffee, don't worry, there's a few more days left on the retreat. <laughs> um, so when you have this smile, let's all just try this right now. You just, hmm. So it's not like a fake kind of smile. It's just content. And you'll notice, uh, if you close your eyes and you just smile softly, you'll notice at the very back of your tongue, which is where your tongue turns into your throat, it widens and it takes the same shape as your lips. Everybody feel that? If you just have a little smile the very root of your tongue, where it's almost your throat, the center of it drops, and then the tongue takes the same shape as your lips. Can you feel that a little bit? Mm -hmm. And then your breathing's more natural. So whenever you're caught up in a despair, and you can't get back, you just smile. Like you had a sense of humor not taking yourself so seriously. (laughs) And then that's how you go straight on a road with 99 curves. You don't be so disapproving uh, of yourself. And that's what that stage is all about. Because um, some of you, all of us, me included, it's like we get out of prison, and then we turn around and we knock on the prison door (laughs) to try and get back in again. Can you imagine this? Some of you don't have to imagine it. It's like banging on the wall. Let me in! (laughs) On retreat, when you see someone, I think about this a lot, because a lot of times people come in to interview and they say, like, I'm so judgmental. And I start to, like, add up how many people say that, and I think, oh my God, imagine what's going on in the Zendo. Like, everybody just judging each other. And themselves. But when you're, one of the things that happens on your retreat is you do what Hakuin calls uh, taking the step back. So you notice you're judging someone, for example, or judging anything. And then you take a step back and you notice what's going on for me here. It's like you withdraw the projection, you swallow the projection. And then you might say, Oh, I do that. I do that also. And then you might see that everyone in this community that we're in right now in this moment is just like you, actually. That they're an exaggerated version of every character that's in you. Everybody in here. You can find the qualities that annoy you in you. And then when you release that, you say, oh, I'm like that. I can do that. I can be like that. Or I was once like that. Uh, Then it's a release, and you're going straight. So, stage seven. Astride the ox. So you're on the ox. You reach home. Now at rest, the ox is forgotten. With the bright sun high in the sky, you are in blissful repose. Whip 
and tether are abandoned behind the thatched hut. And an ancient commentary on this says, uh, All is one, not two. We only made the ox a temporary subject. Isn't that interesting? In the Lotus Sutra, there's a story where um, the Buddha uh, reveals to the Sangha that uh, nirvana was just something that he made up. And he just made it up as upaya, a skillful means. He made it up as a skillful teaching just to get people on the path. Some of you might know this story. It's a a great parable. The parable of someone's leading the Sangha down this really hard road uh, to travel. And um, everyone's finally completely exhausted, so he puts them up in a hotel. And uh, with Wi-Fi. I like Wi-Fi better. The Wi-Fi. And and then uh, in the morning, everybody gets up little bit more rested, snaps his fingers and says, oh, that hotel didn't really exist, actually. And this path doesn't really exist. And nirvana doesn't really exist. And I've actually just conjured all of this up just to get you going on the path. That the ox, this idea that there is something that one day you will get to find home, was actually just an idea to get you on retreat. So, we started the retreat saying, open to sound, mindful of the breath. And then we start to notice that um, once we establish some calmness, which we're all going to work on for the rest of our lives, um, we start to notice that our attention is so focused on the content that's coming up. And I think I said this already, but this is the biggest difference between psychotherapy and meditation. And it takes a long time to learn this one. Mm -hmm. That when stuff's arising, we just don't get that interested in the content. We're just noticing the arising and passing away of the content as psychophysical experience. And then we start to notice, hey, and I kind of hinted at this in the meditation instruction this morning. If if I keep looking at the content, it's never going to end. I mean, there's always content to keep looking at. What if I turn around, and this is all kind of a spatial metaphor, you don't actually turn. I'm sure there's fundamentalist meditation schools where they like turn around or something. But <laughs> you, you, you actually turn the light around and you look at awareness, you see, rather than the content. And you can see that there's there's this quality of awareness that's present all the time. Have you noticed? Can, can you notice this? Yeah. And again, that's just a paradigm. Like if I say notice awareness, then like that's a paradigm. Vedanta happens to love this paradigm. Um, but the point is to notice that there's something there that's not a something. It's just awareing that's happening. And this is really, really important because this is the energy that saves us from having habits that we're caught in and saying to ourselves, God, I really shouldn't do this, but here I go. (laughs) That's just like 
the narrow mind noticing content. But awareness is like behind that, noticing how the narrow mind is noticing the content. And this is the cure for self-judgment. Because when you judge yourself a lot, the tendency is to then see that you're judging yourself and then judge yourself for judging yourself. And then judging yourself for judging yourself that you're judging yourself all the time. Bad. (laughs) So awareness is when there's a stability of knowing and the chore of practice disappears in this stage. So what happens is, is when you're able to just aware to presence the situation, then we engage our lives in a way we didn't before. Because we're not so invested anymore in the content. We see that working with the content is not actually going to bring freedom. It's working on a level that's important, but that there's something else. And this new freedom from grasping doesn't mean we don't uh, want things, or doesn't mean we don't use things or have things. It just means now we're not so attached. There isn't like a gripping around stuff, material stuff. There's not a gripping on other people. And the shadow of this stage, which isn't in the commentary, but this is my own experience, but the the shadow of this stage is that, well, number one, you can forget how... um, the training's helpful. So because because it's so stable, you can just be like, oh, this is it. This is the ox. And it also doesn't really exist. It's just awareness. And 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 it's so healing and so attractive, it feels like I don't have to practice anymore. And the other shadow is you forget that the training's really helpful for other people. And it makes you feel like you just want to get away from the messiness of the world. And you hear teachers talk like this all the time, uh, non-dual teachers, you know. Everything's pure consciousness. But um, let me tell you what the street version is, like what it really feels like, which is basically what happens is you just don't defend yourself so much anymore. And I don't mean defending yourself with other people. I mean just internally not so defended. And you also realize that nothing can save you. In the previous stages, we still thought that someone was going to save us. A new love is going to save us. A new job is going to save us. new teacher is going to save us. I remember, I 
used to feel like with my teacher, uh, I'm going to become a better meditator than them. I used to always feel that. Because you know you hear a lot, like you have to surpass your teacher. I was like, I'm going to like totally surpass them. (laughs) I never did, not one of them. (laughs) But you start to see that as you form a relationship with practice, nothing can really save you except your relationship with practice. And when I say practice, you can hear, you should hear, life L-I-F-E, capitals, glowing, you know, life. When you love someone, you just love somebody. When you practice, you just have a practice, and it's just there. And you make a commitment, and it's just underneath everything. So that's what this stage is about. And then, um, from the perspective of awareness... You can't see awareness. That makes any sense. Like, we can talk about it. We can say, like, turn around, look at the stability of awareness. And you start to trust in that. But then you start to see that it isn't something. And this is stage uh, number eight, transcending the ox. It says, whip, tether, self, and ox have all merged. No traces remain. The vast blue sky cannot be reached by thoughts. How can a snowflake abide in raging fire? Having reached home, you are now in line with the ancient way. So you've developed a relationship now with practice. It's easier. It doesn't feel like it's something you have to do. Maybe you don't believe this yet. You might think, oh God, really? I mean, such a chore. But you'll see actually after a while that it's just what you do. You just do it. It has nothing to do with discipline. And if you miss a day of sitting, then like uh, you have to have a conversation then with your practice. You have to bring your practice flowers. Sorry, sorry, I missed you. I didn't give you any notice. I just didn't show up. I'm sorry that I stood you up. And you just lay flowers on your cushion. And then your cushion will forgive you. And it'll say, I missed you. And you'll say, I missed you too. And what this stage is really all about is um, intimacy. The subject and the object have collapsed into each other. And there's just what's happening. Have you felt this on the retreat yet, where you're following your breathing, sound, calming, and then things just feel kind of spacious and there's just what's happening? And it's not happening to you, it's just what's happening. What a relief. And then right away, the ego comes in and goes, Oh, this is really cool. (laughs) 
but you keep having a relationship with that. And I mean, this is how practice works, right? It's this ongoing relationship with this unfolding of our lives and the mysterious part of this unfolding because it's going to unfold differently for each person in here. So if you get really close to the ox, there's no ox. If you get really close to your mother or your father, there's no mother or father. Just a human being, just like you. You know this experience when you're so close to somebody and there's just neither of you? Like in romantic love at the beginning? Can I tell you a story I've never told anybody? Okay, when I... Thank you. I mean, I, you're just captive, you know. When, 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 in 1987, I think it was, a movie came out called Pretty Woman. Anybody see this movie? Yes. Starring Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. I, I'll never see it again because I'm scared it will wreck my experience. But uh, I fell completely in love with Julia Roberts. It was the moment I knew I was heterosexual. In that movie. And uh, did I just say that? Anyway. <laughs> so I had a friend from summer camp named uh, Rob. And uh, he lived in Los Angeles. And he invited me to, to come visit him. And uh, so uh, I went to go visit him. And he said, uh, let's go see some music. And I have some friends who have a band. So I said, okay, okay let's do that. And then he said, uh, the singer is friends with this guy, Jason. And his girlfriend is Julia Roberts. And she'll for sure be there. She's always there when they play. And I thought, okay. <laughs> the background that I never thought of until now is that um, at the time I was totally in love with this girl who lived down the street from me who had red hair. So maybe it was like, and she wasn't interested in me, but maybe it was displaced on Julia Roberts, I guess. So anyways, I went to the concert. And then I sat down and she was sitting right next to me at the concert and uh, I was just totally frozen <laughs> and then uh, so you know and she was like moving a little bit what's going on I was just really and then um, I had this crazy idea my idea was oh and she was sitting beside her boyfriend that if I uh, breathed a little bit on an angle <laughs> that I could move her hair <laughs> and then I would be touching her. So, so that's what I did. So I was breathing. This is true. And I, I was like, moving her hair. And uh, does this seem creepy? This is, I was kind of creepy. So, anyways, so then what happened was, so then what happened was, I was moving her hair, and then I realized this, is, this might be weird because I could get caught. So, so, so what I did was I, I stopped, and I just was breathing, and then I realized we, she was breathing, and, I, and we were both breathing the same air in the room. And we were both listening to the same music at the same time in the same moment on Earth. And it was like, it was amazing. <laughs> So then, uh, so then the concert ended, and everybody stood up, and the band people came out after all, and I ended up in a circle 
where everyone introduced themselves. And then when it was time for me to talk, I just couldn't talk because I felt like I had this really like deep connection with her. But, I mean, she had no idea, <laughs> but it was just this really deep. So I don't know why I told you that. Um, oh, oneness. <laughs> when we're like so in ourselves all the time our experience of our life is so narrow we can't really be happy for other people your colleague gets a raise or something and it's like why didn't I get the raise And we can't really have empathy because it's all about how it relates to me. So at this stage we realize there isn't really a me that this whole thing is happening to. And not only that, we can be totally intimate with what's happening in such a deep way that there's just nothing left over. And here's the key. So this is the key to practice this. Number one, you need some courage. You need some courage to actually be so close to what's happening that you're not afraid. And number two, when you meet what's happening, you can't hold on to it. I have a friend uh, who I've been talking a lot with the past couple days uh, in Canada. Her, her friend uh, uh, tried to take her own life this week and is now in a hospital. And so my friend, uh, has, I've been Skyping with her and she's been saying like, uh, what do I do? Uh, so I said, uh, go, go to the hospital and go see her. She said, I don't know when I get to the hospital, like what should I do, what should I say? And I just said to her, you'll know what to do. You have a practice, you'll know what to do. We all know what to do. But we get into this whole thing, like, what should I do? I have to be trained, you know. And that's the point of this practice, is it's, it's teaching you not only intimacy, because that can get a little bit idealistic. It's just teaching you moment to moment how to be responsive, how to respond. That's what the concentration's for. It's to be so close to what's happening, there's no ox, there's nothing else to achieve, this is it. The light in the room right now, the temperature, your body breathing. Imagine if this is it. But the personality that's always accelerating is like, no, no, no. There must be something beyond this. When Allen Ginsberg, a poet, found out he was dying, he, uh, he went home and uh, he called all his friends. 
uh, I know one of the people who was his friend who told me the story. But apparently what he did was he called all of his friends, every single friend, close friend, and said to them, I just found out I have five weeks to live. Turns out he had less. I just found out I have five weeks to live. Uh, how can I help you? So that's this stage. Most of us would say, I've got five weeks to live. Holy shit. I better get on a silent retreat. What am I going to do? You know, how am I going to prepare? Isn't that beautiful, his response? I've got five weeks left. How, how can I, what can I do for you? What can I, how can I help you? I don't have much time. So that's the eighth stage. Don't be idealistic and think the eighth stage is, oh, you see everything is one, and then you're just like blissed out. You know? I was reading this when I had my last email, which was this morning, with my friend. who, And she wrote back and she said, I went to the hospital and uh, it was so great to see her. And she was so happy to see me. And she's like, and I didn't think about it at all. I was just... So I wrote her, that, I wrote her back this stage of forgetting the ox. Uh, the, where the line says, the blue sky cannot be reached by thought. So I keep saying to you, and I'm going to say it again today, that if you keep using the techniques and you keep investigating more and more and more, um, you'll receive transmission. You'll receive the transmission of the teaching. Nobody's going to give you transmission. It's not going to come from marble And so when you sit, uh, you don't sit to get enlightened. You just sit because you're already awake. 30 minutes. And then you walk. And you sit again. And then you walk and you sit again. Expressing your awakening. Refining it. So that you get purified by time. Purified by practice. You get you put the time in and it just purifies you. And then you see that oh all that fear that I had, like look how much I made up around that fear about the future. There was nothing there. Or maybe there was something there, and like it's okay, I can feel that now. And maybe death is going to be like this too. I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But then you have a practice. And maybe at the moment of death, there's no death. It's just the mo- another moment of your life. There's a story about um, a wonderful teacher named Isan Dorsey, who, who started, uh, he left a, a Zen community he left a monastery so he could create 
a hospice for people with AIDS in San Francisco, where the hospice was also the monastery. So imagine, like, the whole practice center were people living with HIV-AIDS, but mostly people who were at the end. I I visited there, uh, not when he was alive. Um, Anyways, uh, there's a story that apparently uh, at his funeral, or uh, at his death, everybody around him was really sad, and he was just starting to go off. Uh, and he would have moments where he was going away, and then he was back again. You know? And then somebody started crying, and they said to him, uh, We're going to miss you so much. And he said, uh, Why, are you going somewhere? <laughs> That's going straight down the road with 99 curves. So it's important to realize that um, this experience of oneness, this experience of samadhi, this experience of seeing that there's no ox, really. Just being open to what's happening. When you sit in here, don't meditate. Just sit open to experience, being completely yourself. And then when the mind comes crashing in, then you have to start again with the technique. But know when it's okay to let the technique go. And also know that those moments are temporary. And I don't care what any other spiritual teacher says. These experiences of samadhi are impermanent. They're timeless, and they're conditioned. And so, you go to the top of the mountain, but you also have to go down the other side. So don't hold on to them. It's so easy to understand, but it's so hard to live, isn't it? So these two stages are called... Forgetting the ox, and then transcending the ox. Sometimes you need the first tool of just coming back again and again and again. Release the tongue, soften the gaze, just come back. Basic mindfulness, it's so hard. And then sometimes that leads you into kind of an open space where you can investigate more deeply. And some of you, I've been giving you practices to look more deeply at what's happening. And then sometimes you also might want to take this other tool of like <coughs> seeing that awareness is kind of really stable and just noticing this whole experience like a, like a mirror, how a mirror doesn't take the shape of what it's noticing. In the old text, they say it's like a very still lake. And when the geese fly overhead, the lake just mirrors the geese. As opposed to the choppy lake, and the geese fly overhead, and you just see bits and pieces of reality. 
Some other texts say it's like going to a river and taking a glass, picking it up, and how and you look at the water and how it's muddy, and you say the water's muddy. But then when you leave the glass there for thirty minutes, then ten minutes of walking, then another thirty minutes, ten minutes of walking, <laughs> and then you look again. Um, you see that the water was clear the whole time, actually. So that's the awareness of awareness. And then, in that space of awareness of awareness, you can't see awareness of awareness. You feel something, but if you try to look at it, it gets further away. Because uh, there's no ox. And this brings you right back into this moment, but without clinging. And that's samadhi, is intimacy without any holding on to it. And then maybe you can help people. Because that's the goal of the practice. You just don't see it yet. But the goal of this practice is compassion. Thank you.